You've probably never heard of Charlie Gard. He's a terminally ill 10-month-old baby who has now been sentenced to death by the European Court on Human Rights, an Orwellian organization if ever there has been one, which determined that while his parents wanted to take him to the United States for a long-shot, potentially life-saving treatment, they couldn't. Instead, the court ruled, the great Ormond Street Hospital for Children would withdraw all life support, killing Charlie. What was the court's justification? Charlie had to, quote-unquote, die with dignity. You see, Charlie suffers from a mitochondrial disease that destroys the muscles in the brain. There was no available treatment in the United Kingdom, and so Charlie's parents, Chris Gard and Connie Yates, raised $1.6 million to fly him to the U.S. for an experimental treatment. But the hospital argued that the treatment wouldn't help Charlie and would prolong his suffering, and that they knew better than the parents who had to suffer through his illness and care for him every single day. Thus, the hospital argued that it would be in Charlie's best interest to die. UK courts agreed. The guards then appealed to the EU, and now the court has ruled against them, with the ECHR, that's the European Commission on Human Rights, stating, quote, Charlie would suffer significant harm if his present suffering was prolonged without any realistic prospect of improvement, and the experimental therapy would be of no effective benefit. The hospital issued its own perverse statement. They said, quote, our thoughts are with Charlie's parents on receipt of the news that we now know will be very distressing for them. Today's decision by the European Court of Human Rights marks the end of what has been a very difficult process. And our priority is to provide every possible support to Charlie's parents as we prepare for the next steps. Despite the hospital's statement that it would not immediately change the standard of care, his parents now report that the hospital will withdraw life support tomorrow. His parents announced, quote, We begged them to give us the weekend. Friends and family wanted to come and see Charlie for the last time, but now there isn't even time for that. Doctors said they would not rush to turn off his ventilator, but we are being rushed. Not only are we not allowed to take our son to an expert hospital to save his life, we also can't choose how or when our son dies. There are several levels to the perversity here. First, for all the talk of the evils of the American system of healthcare, at least we promote freedom of choice and give as many options to people for their care as they can afford. As the doctor who offered experimental treatment said in court, if Charlie had been ill at any institution in the United States, they would immediately have begun the treatment. But in the UK, a socialized medicine country where individual needs come second to the preservation of the system, there is less concern with parental rights. In the US, we are so interested in the freedom to obtain care that we insist on releasing a legally brain-dead girl to her mother so long as her mother wishes to keep her hooked up to a ventilator. In the UK, they are insistent on withdrawing the opportunity for life-saving care because it is better to kill the child than keep it alive. While this case became a court proceeding, every single day, the National Health Service, the NHS, makes decisions about how to ration care. Bernie Sanders tweets about how nobody should be denied care because they can't afford it, but that's what happens all the time under socialized medicine. The difference being, it's not about you not being able to afford it, it's about the government not being able to afford it. And you do not even have the capacity to raise the money to fund the care yourself. Second, a government-run system breeds a shift in control. In the U.S., the case of Charlie Gard is a major scandal. In the EU, it's apparently no big deal. That's because we in the United States like to think that we control our lives and that as parents, our priorities matter than those of random doctors who don't raise our kids. But once you give up control of your life and death decisions to an impersonal government, it is nearly impossible to take back that control. This case could have been easy. The hospital could have released the child back to the parents. The hospital didn't do it because it believed that it had the final save. And why shouldn't it? It always has the final say under the NHS system. Third, allowing the government to control the value of life means devaluing life. It has been a fundamental hallmark of Western civilization that life ought to be preserved in spite of pain, in spite of suffering, that death is not a solution to suffering. But that notion has now been stripped away in favor of a secularist standard of healthy living. And so in Europe, euthanasia is now available to people who aren't even terminal, people who suffer from depression or anorexia. 
Better to die with dignity than live with pain. That's the new math. That's a far cry from the original Hippocratic Oath, which overtly stated, neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course, or even the Tufts Medical School version, which is usually used in the United States, which states, quote, above all, I must not play at God. Those who value life want to keep choices about their life in their hands, rather than turning such control over to an impersonal government bureaucracy that guarantees you coverage it chooses for you. Charlie Gard's story isn't just a travesty of justice and an insult to decency. It's a warning for people who think that bureaucracies are as interested in preserving your health care as you are. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. It's just a heartbreaking story, and I want to talk a little bit more about the Charlie Gard story in a second. Plus, President Trump on Twitter again, saying stuff, CNN imploding, all sorts of fun coming up. But before we get to any of that, I want to say thank you to our sponsors, over at Lyft. So right now, Lyft is looking for new drivers. And what makes Lyft fantastic for drivers is that you are allowed to tip in the app. When you drive for the right ride-sharing app, every trip feels great. And Lyft is that ride-sharing app. You can pick your own hours. You work when you want. Uh, They are the ride-sharing company that believes in treating their people really well, which means that if you're a customer, you're going to get the best drivers. Lyft believes that being a ride-sharing driver should be fun. If you're choosing a ride-sharing company to drive for, go with the company that treats you well. They offer, as I say, in-app, t- in-app t- tipping. When you drive for Lyft, you keep 100% of the tips. Drivers have been paid over $150 million in tips since the feature was introduced. I ride with Lyft all the time. I talk to the people who drive. They are very happy, and uh, I've always felt the uh, I've always felt the spur to, to give them good tips because they're terrific people and great drivers. Lyft has even taken the guesswork out of pickups. Right now, they have an AMP device that uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. You can earn hundreds of dollars a week if you're a driver over at Lyft, plus tips. If you want to make more money, you drive more. It's that simple. It's a simple formula, which is why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect 5-star rating because the drivers are happy. Right now, if you want to become a Lyft driver, go to lyft.com, L-Y-F-T dot com slash Shapiro today. That's lyft.com slash Shapiro, and you get a $500 new driver bonus right out of the gate. That's lyft.com slash Shapiro, lyft.com slash Shapiro. Limited time only. Terms apply. Again, Lyft, great ride-sharing app. We use it all the time in the Shapiro household, lift.com slash Shapiro. Okay, well, yeah, the, the life issue is near and dear to my heart, as you know, if you've watched the program at all or seen any of my videos on YouTube. I'm actually in Wisconsin right now broadcasting from the road uh, because I was the keynote speaker at the National Right to Life Convention, and there is a sickness that has taken hold on the left that suggests that life is not valuable unless it is up to your standard of what constitutes health and happiness, right? So, the, the idea here is that quality of life matters more than life itself, which is just asinine because the fact is quality of life changes over time. Just because somebody is suffering does not mean that their life is meaningless or valueless. This becomes particularly an issue when the person can't speak for themselves as with this as with this kid. As, as a sort of libertarian person, uh, I you know I morally don't believe in assisted suicide, but as a libertarian, I sort of understand the position at least, the notion that, that if you are terminally ill and you're going to die anyway, that you may want to pull the plug. It's not something I agree with morally, and I don't think that the government should be involved in sponsoring it. Um, But I certainly don't agree with the idea here, which is that if this baby was not going to have quality of life that you like, and you, I mean the court, if you don't like that quality of life, but the parents want to preserve the life, I don't see how you are able to trump their capacity to attempt to save their own child. It's just, it's just plain evil. And you can hear the suffering of the parents. Here's what the parents had to say just a couple of months ago about the government attempting to stop them from bringing... This is not even a matter of them asking the, the NHS to cover the cost. They're saying, we'll cover the cost ourselves. Just give us back our kids so we can leave. And the NHS basically said, no, here is, uh, here is the, the parents of this poor, this poor child. What, what, what happens now? 
Well, we're going to try and appeal the decision. Just wanting to find out in where we can. Mm. Have you, is there a time scale that, that you have to adhere to two to, weeks to make that appeal? Yeah, it was three weeks, but it's now kind of a week's passed and it's two weeks today. That must be very difficult, Chris, to get your head around doing anything like that when you must be feeling so devastated about what happened at the end of that court I still case. haven't got my head around it. It was a week ago and I'm still, you know, I can't sleep, I can't eat. Um, I still can't get my head around why we're not allowed to take our boy um, for treatment that he so desperately needs. You know. And just to get be clear, Chris, you've raised money, you have funds, you could pay for the transportation to the United States, yeah? And you're prepared to do that. Yeah. The reason that the, the, the judges decided that that should not be the case is that the medical opinion is that this would be too stressful and, and too painful for your son. Is that right? But that's what they're saying. That's not, we totally disagree with that. Um, he's probably the most kind of stable baby in there. Mm -hmm. um, he's not in pain. He's not suffering because if he was suffering and he was in pain, we wouldn't sit by his bed and watch him suffer. So um, the harshness of all of this is partly that you're not asking for anyone else to pay for this, mm. right? So you're just being denied the physical transportation. Yeah. Okay, this is what is truly incredible about all of this. And this is why, again, there is a basic rift when it comes to the quote-unquote right to health care. People on the right say you have the right to obtain health care for which you are willing to pay. And that gives you the ability to make choices about your own health care. The left says... You have the right to obtain health care regardless of ability to pay, but then says, okay, well, the people who are actually going to pay for you get to make the decisions. The bottom line is, in life, whoever controls the dollars makes the call. Okay, when it comes to your own health care, if you control the dollars, you make the call. And if the government controls the dollars, the government makes the call. And so in this particular case, you know, there have been situations like this in the United States, like Terry Schiavo, but even that was a little bit different because Schiavo was an adult and they were trying to figure out what her wishes would have been as an adult. In the United States, if you are, it was not a matter of willingness to pay or, or the people who obviously have control over the situation, the parents, making a case. What, what the guards are going through may be specific to their child, but socialized medicine is all about somebody else making a decision for you, how long you ought to wait in line for a surgery, what sort of treatment you ought to get, what sort of treatment is best for you. In the United States, we don't do that. So when people say you spend a lot of money, yeah, we spend a lot of money because we choose to spend a lot of that money, and that's okay. You know, and We do a big ideas section at the end of the show now, and at the end of the, the show today, I'm going to talk about supply and demand in healthcare because I think people need to understand how this works, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But before we do that, the other big news of the day, because everything is stupid, is President Trump decides that it is imperative that he go off on Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough. So as I mentioned yesterday, the only people who be benefit from the media fight with Trump are the media and Trump. That's the, only, the American people don't benefit from this in any way. And because there's such a reactionary feeling on both sides, because Trump supporters are not well, at least a lot. A lot of Trump supporters are not even interested in forwarding his policy goals. They're more interested in him slapping the left. Whatever he does that slaps the left is seen as an ultimate good, even if it's actually counterproductive to pushing his agenda. And on the left, they're so the, the same exact thing. They're so interested in seeing the media slap Trump that it doesn't matter if it undermines their own credibility. At least they're slapping Trump, and Trump is mean and bad. So Mika Brzezinski was on with Joe Scarborough this morning, and she said something about Trump's tiny hands. She made some crack about Trump's tiny hands. Now, he's the most powerful man on planet Earth. He's one of the richest men on planet Earth. You would think that President Trump 
could handle, you know, somebody being mildly insulting or very insulting. I mean, this is part of the job. It's part of the gig. But President Trump then took to Twitter and he tweeted out, quote, and this is a direct quote from his Twitter. This is the president of the United States, not Donald Trump candidate, not Donald Trump reality star, the most powerful man on planet Earth and a job that used to, you know, we on the right used to say, why isn't Barack Obama wearing his jacket in the Oval Office? Why is he putting his shoes on the desk in the Oval Office? Hey, this is the guy in the Oval Office now, quote, I heard poorly rated Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then, how come how come low IQ crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. Okay, first of all, terrible story, dude. I mean, like, that's a really crappy story. But so there, there are a bunch of people on the right who find this just absolutely hysterically funny because it's funny anytime anybody on the left gets slapped, even if this is just the Three Stooges and it's Larry Curley and Mo pulling each other's hair and poking each other in the eyes. Uh, I'm th- this isn't my favorite Trump insult. Trump has has had insults that I think are are much better than this. Uh, he has a very short thesaurus of insults: low IQ, crazy, psycho, low energy short, you know, like he has a kind of this, this, it's like 11 insults and he just rotates them. Um, but in any case, people were going after Trump and they're very upset with Trump because Trump was talking about her bleeding from her facelift, which is utterly irrelevant to any of this stuff. And now to be fair, to be fair, as I say, uh, it is true that the, that, um, the, it is true that the media have been targeting Trump. It is fair that it is true that Mika Brzezinski was going after uh, President Trump on his appearance on, on his hands. And so it's not totally unfair for him to strike back, except for the fact that she's a news commentator and he's the president of the United States. Now, on the right, I think people on the left have to understand why people on the right respond to Trump by basically poo-pooing some of this stuff. Not because it's right, because it isn't right, okay? I don't think this should be poo-pooed. I think it's stupid. I think when the right poo-poos this kind of stuff, they're actually undercutting their own credibility. There's not a single person in America who thinks less of Mika Brzezinski because Donald Trump tweeted about her facelift. Okay, no one who is not already in Trump's camp cares about that sort of stuff. But, both the, again, when you talk about the polarization in the country right now, people on the right view Trump's shtick. People on the right view Trump's shtick the same way that people on the left view Samantha Bee. So Samantha Bee is utterly unfunny. If you're on the right and you watch Samantha Bee, you think, how does this woman make a living? She is just awful. She's gauche and nasty and vulgar. And the left just swoons for her. They love her. Why? Because it's not that she has to tell the truth. She doesn't. She just has to slap Trump. So here's an example. She's slapping Paul Ryan last night on on her show. I mean, this is vulgar and crude, and the left celebrates this kind of stuff all the time. Most people like Medicaid, including Republican people. Who the hell asked you to gut it by sending it to the states and capping its growth rate? Medicaid. Sending it back to the states, capping its growth rate. We've been dreaming of this since I've been around, since you and I were, were, were drinking at a keg. <laughs> I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Oh, yeah. While most college guys in the 90s were fantasizing about Pamela Anderson, Paul Ryan was jerking it to thoughts of poor people losing health care to pay for tax cuts. Ha 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 ha. Okay, and then the left loses it. Oh, yeah, Samantha B. she's the best. She's so fun. Okay. So Samantha B is basically to insult comedy what Trump is to insult comedy on the right. Now, the difference is that Trump is the president of the United States. He is not a comic on late night TV. And I know that the right is finding it amusing that Trump is playing the comic on late night TV, but it's not actually making his agenda any more effective. It's giving the left a reason to bat him around. And it is plainly rather immoral for the president of the United States to be tweeting about 
people's bloody facelift in order to humiliate them because they don't like him in the media. It's just not a good thing to do. I mean, is it fair to say that that's not a good thing to do? Are we allowed to say that anymore? Nonetheless, because everybody, it, it's now a slap fight, okay? All of politics is a slap fight. The cause, you know, I used to stand for the cause. The cause was things like pro-life. The cause was things like lower taxes and smaller government and less regulation and more power over your own life. That was the cause. Now the cause is everybody slapping each other like Kramer and, and like, like Seinfeld and, and Costanza. On, I mean, it's, they're just sitting around. It's like Napoleon Dynamite having a slap fight. Ooh, Napoleon Dynamite got in a slap. That's what it is now. And you can hear the glee, right? I mean, so Sarah Huckabee Sanders goes out there in the media and she says, well, of course Trump said this because he always slaps back. He's got to slap back. I mean, what do you want not to slap people? Come on. Look, I, I don't think that the president's ever been someone who gets attacked and doesn't push back. Uh, there have been an outrageous number of personal attacks, not just to him, but to, frankly, everyone around him. Uh, people on that show have personally attacked me many times. This is a president who fights fire with fire and certainly will not be allowed to be bullied by liberal media and the liberal elites within the media or Hollywood or anywhere else. I get it, but... Okay, this is the routine. But 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 he, but he, but he, fight, but he fights. But he fights. Maga, 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 maga. But he fights. Maga. Okay. Here's the deal, folks. Would you like him to be a successful president or not? Because I fail to see how him talking about Mika Brzezinski's facelift does anything to establish a border wall or Obamacare repeal or tax reform. This doesn't... Like, some of Trump's attacks are useful. Like, when he attacks CNN for promoting fake news, and they're actually promoting fake news, that is good. That is useful. I am a big fan of evidence-based insults, okay? So if you're going to insult someone, you have to have some evidence to back it up. And the evidence has to go to the issue at hand, okay? It, it, like, if you're having an argument about politics and then you just say about somebody, well, you're fat, this is not helpful and it doesn't forward your agenda in any way. It just looks petty and silly and ridiculous. And that's why the media is going nuts and they're having fun with this whole thing today and calling him a sexist. The right is saying, yeah, Trump was mean to Brzezinski. Who the hell cares about Mika Brzezinski except for Donald Trump? Nobody watches that show. Nobody, realistically speaking, watches that much cable news. Okay, the highest ranked cable news shows get like 2 million viewers a night. Okay, there are 330 million people in the country. And yet, and, and we're supposed to think that this is the form of winning, is, is slapping Mika Brzezinski over her facelift. I mean, like, really? Really? It's just a waste of time. Now, again, on the, on the left side of the aisle, they're trying to use this to, to give themselves the moral high ground, and they don't deserve the moral high ground because they're slapping Trump every chance they get in exactly the same way. They're just going out and, and using the stupidest possible reasons to, to slap Trump and making things up. I mean, th this is amazing. So CNN did an entire segment a couple of nights ago talking about refugee children from Syria and having Elmo explain it. Right. I mean, yes. No, there's no there's no media bias, Virginia. Elmo just regularly appears on CNN to explain the issues of the day. Here's tape of that. Elmo, can I just start by asking you, because I know you went to visit a refugee camp in Jordan, right? Yes. Back in February? Yes. What was it like? It was really wonderful. Oh, Elmo and Miss Sherry went we to Jordan together. We did. And it was Indeed. really wonderful because Elmo got to meet a lot of new friends. A lot of new friends. And did you find that the Syrian little girls and little boys were a lot like your friends here in America? Yeah, they really were. It was very interesting because they like to play and learn, right. just like Elmo and all of his friends at Sesame Street. And they loved Elmo. They loved meeting Elmo. Oh, my God. And then you wonder why we think there's media bias. So CNN is trying to restore its credibility. Here is a headline that CNN ran yesterday. Okay, there's an actual headline that they ran yesterday. Obama's genes game gets stronger. Yes, really. That's a headline that they wrote. So while they're busy doing all of this 
useless crap and then proclaiming themselves the most important people on earth for checking the president of the United States. And then Trump slaps them back with crap about facelifts. All of this is stupid. All of this is distraction. Now, the right is, there's some people on the right who are using this as an excuse to to kill CNN, right? So Sean Hannity is leading the charge on this. He says, it's time to put CNN underground. We're going to kill CNN finally. Well, we're going to kill the beast. Here we go. But first, let me explain how one of the biggest anti-Trump networks has lost all their credibility and can no longer be trusted by you, the American people. Now, at this point, we should put CNN, six feet, you see right there, underground for repeatedly spreading lies, propaganda, black helicopter, tinfoil hat conspiracy theories, and for viciously trying to take down this president. Now, let's just look at some of the network's many controversies and scandals. Okay. Now, it's true. I've talked, I've talked as much as Sean has about CNN's bias. CNN is wildly biased to the left. When Sean does this routine where he acts as though CNN only became biased in the last five minutes, so only now have they destroyed their credibility. They've been destroying their credibility for years. Again, you can find tape of me on YouTube saying that they were basically a propaganda outlet for Hamas during the Gaza war three years ago. So this is nothing new. I mean, this has been happening my entire adult life at the very least. But there's a sort of opportunism where Sean is saying, okay, let's use this opportunity to put CNN underground and we'll just, and, and we'll just throw away whatever news they report at the same time. Again, is any of this designed toward getting at the truth or is this more designed at partisan bickering and let's take out our political opposition? That matters because if it's designed to get at the truth, then it's worthwhile. You know, debunking media bias is useful if you're attempting to get at the truth. Debunking media, because the entire media outlet, because you hate them and want them to lose, that's a slightly different thing. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that, and I want to talk about the media's insane response to all of this. But first, I want to say thank you to our friends over at Birch Gold. So, you should definitely have part of your portfolio in precious metals. There is risk of inflation. There is risk of disaster, natural disaster that affects monetary supply. Uh, there's risk of economic collapse. There's risk of stock market. You should always have part of your assets in something solid like precious metals. And that's where my friends at Birch Gold Group come in. They have a longstanding track record of continued success, thousands of satisfied clients, countless five-star reviews, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Right now, gold has been doing really well in the market. Actually, I think it's been rising for five or six months now. Uh, if you contact Birch Gold Group right now to request a free information kit on physical precious metals, they will send you a 16-page kit on how gold and silver can protect your savings and how you can legally move your IRA or 401k out of stocks and bonds into a precious metals IRA. To get that kit, go to birchgold.com slash Ben. That is birchgold.com slash Ben. Ask all your questions, get all your answers, and then when you're ready to invest in precious metals, talk to my friends over at Birch Gold. Again, that's birchgold.com slash Ben. Use the slash Ben so that they know that we sent you. Okay, so the media have responded to CNN has responded to Trump being anti-media and, and to Hannity being anti-media by doing what they do best, playing the victim. So one of the most irritating facts about the way that Trump and the media play off each other is the media claim they're the victim, so we're justified in slapping Trump. And then Trump and Sarah Huckabee Sanders say Trump is the victim, and so they're justified in slapping Mika across her face-lifted head or whatever. So Brian Stelter yesterday on CNN, he said that anti-journalist rhetoric is on the rise and people are going to die. I told you a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, okay, when there was that shooting in Virginia by a Bernie Sanders supporting loon bag who hated Donald Trump, I said, be very careful that you don't start labeling all rhetoric you don't like potentially violence provoking because the left will use that logic. Maybe they will anyway, but you can at least argue honestly against it if you don't use it yourself. Don't use the logic that rhetoric causes violence unless there's an open call for violence, because otherwise you are just basically trying to rule out all rhetoric 
whatever I think about Trump's stupid tweets, I don't think that they are causing violence against journalists, but that's not what Stelter is saying. He says, people on the left, right, and in between who are pro-journalism recognize that most journalists try to be fair and right. And then he continues, but there's an alternative view, popular and partisan websites and social media that is straight up anti-journalism. These activists and commentators don't promote accountability. They promote resentment and hatred. Some of this anti-journalism spin isn't about eradicating bias or improving news coverage. It's about trying to stamp out reporting altogether. So I generally disagree with this. I, I think most of the people who comment on media bias are not attempting to stamp out the media altogether. But there is a grain of truth to the idea that if you spend time promoting the Seth Rich conspiracy and then you turn around and you say CNN has to be put six feet under because they are all fake news, are you a truth teller or are you just somebody who's attempting to play a partisan game? Now, the left uses that kernel of truth that there are some people on the right who are more anti, just anti all journalistic outlets that ever say anything bad about Trump. They're trying to use that grain of truth and turn that into there's a real threat to us. Okay, there is no real threat to the press. There isn't. Okay, this is not to say there couldn't be a nut job out there who is inflamed and goes and shoots a, a journalist, but this is true in political rhetoric all the time. I mean, there's a reason I travel with security. But the, what the left is trying to do is they're trying to say, we are on the verge because we covered Trump badly. And then Trump is mean to us. And then Trump says nasty things about us. We are on the verge of a fascist takeover here in the United States. So Chris Hayes at MSNBC, he puts on the Rachel Maddow glasses and he says Trump is going to quash the press. That's the next thing. It's going to quash the press. Okay, just to break that down for a moment. First, Amazon does not own the Washington Post. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos does. Second, there are no internet taxes. Amazon is now, however, collecting state sales tax nationwide. But President Trump's tweet goes beyond attacking the Washington Post as fake news, something he did as recently as yesterday. The president is very explicitly linking a complaint about a media entity to a threat, or at least implied threat, against the corporation associated with it. He did this as a candidate, too. During an October speech, he followed up a string of complaints about the media with this. Amazon, which through its ownership controls the Washington Post, should be paying massive taxes. Okay, so we talked about this yesterday, and we talked about how silly this was, but Trump is not actually quashing the press. There has been no active move by President Trump to do anything remotely resembling quashing the press. He's limited press access in ways that Obama limited. Maybe he's done it a little bit more, and that's not good. I've criticized it, but this idea that the, the First Amendment is under siege, that the press are all at threat of some sort of grand government crackdown, haven't seen one shred of that. In fact, they seem pretty loud to me. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this and what the left is trying to do in building this narrative. Um, but for that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and become a subscriber. For $8 a month, you too can be a subscriber to dailywire.com. It means you get the rest of the show live. You get to be part of the mailbag, which we'll be doing tomorrow. We do live questions on the mailbag as well. You can be part of Andrew Clavin's podcast, be part of his mailbag too. So lots of good stuff happening over at Daily Wire. Right now, if you become an annual subscriber, you get a free signed copy of the book that I wrote with my dad about the Chicago White Sox and baseball and fatherhood and being a son. Uh, it's a really fun. It's called Say It So, free signed copy when you become an annual subscriber. Also, become annual right now uh, and uh, lock in that rate because once we hit July 10th, the rates are about to go up, uh, not on people who are already subscribed, but on new subscribers. So if you're thinking about subscribing and you think maybe you'll do it in three weeks, do it now, lock in your lower rate and get the benefit. Or if you just want to listen later, go over to iTunes or SoundCloud, subscribe, leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So the left is attempting to build up, the left media are attempting to build up a new mode of victimization. So now we have a competition between Trump and the press as to who can play the victim the most so they can be the most aggressive. 
Yeah, I talk about this on college campuses all the time. There is a currency to victimhood in our politics right now. If you act like a victim, that means that you get to be more aggressive and do nasty things. This is what microaggression culture is. This idea that if I say something that's really kind of inoffensive, but you take it as offensive, then you get to lash out at me. So Trump does this with the media. Oh, you said something nasty about my tiny hands. Well, your face is ugly and it bleeds. Also, you bleed from here wherever. Also, random insult generator number seven, go. Right, so you get that from Trump. And then you get the media going... I just can't believe that Donald Trump, the president of the United States, would say something about Mika Brzezinski's Botox. How dare he? This is the end of civilization. The republic is at risk. We're all going to die. And what does this justify? Well, for Trump, it justifies being able to say whatever he wants about Mika Brzezinski. And for the press, it justifies being able to say whatever they want about Trump. So we just started this constant spiral of stupidity. So the left's latest spiral downward is not to say that Trump lies a lot, which is technically true. Uh, it is it is for them to say that Trump is actually going to create violence. And then the next thing that's going to happen is that there will be some violent incident. They're already they're already creating the trigger. OK, the right has already done this, too. And we're, we're living right now in uh, on a free speech hair trigger. The free speech hair trigger is basically they've set it up so that they, they've jerry rigged it. So what that means is that when somebody goes and does something violent and they have any political viewpoint at all, the left is immediately going to declare if somebody tries to shoot a journalist, this is because of Trump. Trump is a violent man. He should be impeached on the basis that he has used this rhetoric. And now look at that. Some journalist got shot. And the right has set it up so that if there's a Julius Caesar in the park performance and then some nut job Bernie Sanders supporter goes and tries to shoot Republican Congress people, well, you know, we better we better think about how we shut down some of this rhetoric. We better do something about that hate speech. This is not politics anymore. Now you are edging closer to warfare because when you're actually actively trying to shut down what other people are saying using legal means or violence, you are edging closer to warfare. And the media and and the right are both edging toward this. So Wolf Blitzer is setting up exactly this. He's saying it's dangerous. It's dangerous. We could all die because of Trump. They're, they're going to come after us and murder the journalists. With the White House communications team, have you raised the concern that all of us in the news media have about the president calling all of us enemies of the American people? Uh, because that is a very, very harsh statement and potentially very dangerous. Well, that's that type of rhetoric is something that we have spoken out about uh, since he first said that. And, and many of you probably were at or watched the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, and I addressed that then as well. That is, that is rhetoric that we uh, reject, and uh, it's just not something that I think is... Okay, and then there's, and then there's Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, Jeffrey Goldberg over The Atlantic. He's the editor of The Atlantic. I'm not a Jeffrey Goldberg fan who's a shill for Obama. And here he is saying that Trump's rhetoric is going to cause violence. Jeff, when the president constantly tweets that different newspapers are examples of fake news, like the Washington Post or the New York Times, and, uh, you know, accuses reporters of being fake news at White House uh, briefings or when he appears before reporters there, what's your reaction? Well, well, part of my reaction is that we're, we're all engaged in a reality TV show, that, that this is a reality TV version of a war between a president and the press. Um, and I mean that in, in one specific sense. Right now, we're all benefiting. The weird part of this is, of course, when the New York Times and the Washington Post get tweeted at this way, their subscriber base goes up, right? More people subscribe and, and, and want to support them. The problem is, and this is what I, what I worry about more than anything else, is that, is that there are people in the country who don't understand that, that this is a cynical reality TV game um, and are going to hear over and over again from the president that the reporters, journalists are enemies of the state. 
Okay, so he, again, this is all this is all kabuki theater. Okay, it's all kabuki theater because in real life, when somebody says something nasty about us, we tend to let it go, or if we say something back, they let it go, and then we all drop it and we move on with our lives. Okay, when Trump says nasty things about the media, suck it up, Buttercup. Okay, this is just the way that Trump operates. You know this is how he operates. You're the people who gave him $2 billion in free media coverage last year. So maybe you should think, go in the corner and think about what you've done for ratings. Okay, and if you're Donald Trump, suck it up, Buttercup. You too, you big, you big snowflake. I mean, come on. Like Mika Brzezinski said something about your hands. Ooh, I'm so sad. Ooh, it's so rough for you. Okay, just cut the crap. It's not like the media... The media isn't actively even opposing your agenda so much as they oppose you. I mean, if Trump were actually clever, as his supporters say he was, then he would use all of this as cover to actually push legislation forward. But he's not. Okay, nothing's happening. So it's not like he's misdirecting them over here with their hatred. And then over here, he's actually doing the deep, dirty work of regulations and, and, and lawmaking. No, he's just involved in this sort of slap fight with the media, which, again, makes everybody on both sides feel all fired up and good, but doesn't actually accomplish anything for the country. It's a point of real irritation when we have serious issues facing the country as a whole. Okay, time for some things I like, some things I hate, and then the big idea. So, things I like. I've been doing podcasts that I listen to. Uh, there's a, a great podcast that I'm a fan of called The Weekly Substandard. Uh, it comes from the, some folks over at The Weekly Standard. It's Sonny Bunch uh, and Vic. I, can't, I can never get his last name correct. Uh, and uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Last, um, and uh, it's it's all culture. What's great about this podcast is just movies and TV, and them being snarky with each other. And Sunny Bunch tends to be the most right of them. Jonathan Last is always wrong. Uh, that's the way I see it, anyway. Um, but it's but it's really fun to listen to. And they do one episode a week, and they talk about the latest movies, and they'll do rankings of like best monster movies, or they'll do rankings of best superhero movies, or best hero, hero superhero franchises. Really, a lot of fun to listen to. The Weekly Substandard. Go over and check it out. Okay. Time for some things that I hate. So among the multiplicity of things that I hate today, uh, I would like to point out the fight, the slap fight that is currently happening. Everything's a slap fight now. So the, the slap fight that is currently happening between Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter. So I'm friendly with both of these people. So I've known Ann since I was 16. I've known Sean for 10 years probably. Um, and... Coulter attacked Hannity because she said that Sean would endorse communism if Trump thought that it was a good idea. And then Sean came back and he said, well, you're not sufficiently, you're not sufficiently attuned to Trumpism because you backed Romney and you backed, and you backed Christie. And, and so you, you say that I'm not, that I'm a latecomer to the Trump train. You're a latecomer to the Trump train. Here is why I have a problem with all of this. And again, it go, it, it's all the same point. I don't understand why it's an insult to say when you join the Trump train or if you're on the Trump train or what your status is towards Trump. I don't understand why it's a point of favor to talk about where you stand regarding CNN or CBS or ABC. Like, you don't get points in my eyes for saying the New York Times is fake news. You get points in my eyes for saying, here's what the New York Times reported that is false. And when you have people on my side, people who I'm friends with, and they're fighting with each other because... They don't know whether to show sufficient loyalty to Trump. And, and these fights are all over Trump, right? Like, Ann and Sean agree probably about 85 to 90% of issues, I would say. Um, but now they're slap fighting each other over Trump. Because all that matters is, are you is your allegiance high enough to Trump, or are you just a betrayer of Trump? Who is the true Trumpkin? Is it, is it really Ann who wrote an entire book called In Trump We Trust? Or is it Sean, who spent his entire last year pushing Trump to the presidency? Who is the, who's the true acolyte? Okay, this sort of religious adherence to Trumpism, where we have to have doctrinal battles over who is the true Trump Trump pusher. 
Um, none of this is very good for conservatism because I don't care about Trump. See, this is, this is where I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit weird in the conservative movement right now. Uh, and that is that Trump is of no consequence to me as a human. I don't care about his foibles. I don't care about his bizarre id. I don't care about his, his pathological need to say silly things on Twitter. Like none of that is a huge, it, it makes a difference to me except insofar as I think it hurts the character of the country, uh, or insofar as it prevents me from pushing conservative principles, which includes the inculcation of character in young people, right? Those are the things that I care about. And Trump's either good for that or he's bad for that. But the right has broken down so hard on the Trump for or against, uh, you know, take a position, go. Is he maga, 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 or is he the stupidest man who ever was? Like, okay, if you're doing this right, in my view, it shouldn't matter. Like, it's not an insult to, to like, I think what, what Anne is saying is at least I have principles, Sean, when Trump does something wrong, I'll call him out. And what Sean is saying, well, is if you really had principles, and then you would back Trump even when he's wrong because you know that he's the only one who can win. This seems to be the fight over Trump. But my feeling on all of it is that Trump is irrelevant. Okay, Trump is not irrelevant. Like, he's relevant in that he's president. But since the presidency is a constitutional office with certain particular job descriptions and qualifications and requirements and authority, uh, I would like to see him fulfill all of that. Okay, so uh, time for the big idea. So on Thursdays now, we do the big idea, which is an idea that we talk about that hasn't really been discussed in isolation, but I want to go into a little bit of depth about. So today we're going to talk about supply and demand in healthcare. So there's this bizarre, weird idea that supply and demand do not apply in healthcare. Uh, So first I'm going to talk about what supply and demand are. There's a weird idea on the left that when you don't want supply and demand to apply, they just don't apply, like, at all. Like, supply and demand just disappear as concepts. So if you've ever seen a supply and demand chart, here's how it works. So in a supply curve, in a supply curve, basically the way that it works is as quantity increases, the price drops, right? So it looks like, it looks like this. It's a down, it's a down slope, right? If quantity is, if quantity, uh, as, uh, as quantity increases, so it depends if you're putting the quantity on the y-axis or the, or the, or the x-axis, but uh, in any case, as quantity increases, as the amount that you're producing goes up, the price goes down. Why? Because there's more of it and people can buy it for cheaper. Duh. Okay. As the demand, the demand curve works in opposite direction. So as the amount increases, the amount of demand increases, the price rises. So where those two lines meet is what they call the equilibrium. That's the price where you're producing exactly as much as is being consumed. That's where the market tends toward and competition drives you toward that equilibrium where the amount being produced is exactly the amount being consumed and therefore you don't create the surplus. Okay, so the idea is that the free market through through competition will lead you to the generation of just as much product as the market needs at the price that the market wants to pay for it. Right, the, the the market is seeking equilibrium, and as you have a, as you have a certain amount of demand, so you must reach a certain amount of supply in order to reach that. And competition allows you to do that while lowering price. Okay, so in healthcare, the left suggests that there is a static demand for services, but the price point is too high. In other words, what the left says is, you always need a certain amount of healthcare. You're not buying it because you just want it. It's not like a car or something. Like you need the healthcare, and therefore you're going to spend that same amount of healthcare no matter what you do. Like you need the same amount of healthcare no matter what you do. This is actually not super true. There is elasticity of demand in healthcare. Uh, the more people feel like they're, co- they're covered, the more they go to the doctor. But assume that at root, it's sort of true that, you know, you don't go to the doctor for fun. You go to the doctor when you need to go to the doctor. So if there's a static demand for services the, and, and the price point is too high, then normally what that would suggest is, you know, we all desire a certain level of services. A hundred percent of us want a certain level of services. We would all be trying to pay into the market. That creates a high price point. So what happens? People would compete for our services, and that would bring the price down. You'd get a higher quantity, and therefore a lower price. 
right? So you would see competition to lower price through increased supply. The problem is that the left has prevented increase in supply because the left thinks that it's unfair for us to, to I mean, the left really believes that there's too much unfairness in the distribution of the resource. So instead, we're going to restrict the resource itself. We're going to freeze it in place and redistribute it. So they create all these regulations that have a negative impact on the amount of healthcare generated. Again, if you want to bring the price down on health services, you need more doctors providing more drugs and more tests, and you need them all competing with each other for you, right? just like you would in, in a supermarket, just like you would in the car market. But because of all these laws that the left has passed, that's made it impossible to generate a, more, a, a higher supply. So that means prevention of selling across state lines and minimum services required and administrative costs, which have increased dramatically under Obamacare because of the cost of setting up exchanges and such. So the left refuses to get rid of these regulations. These would be regulations like Obamacare. That restricts supply and that keeps the price high. Instead, they try to lower the price through what they see as collective bargaining. So blackmailing the healthcare providers and health insurers into taking lower prices using services like Medicaid. But this doesn't work either, right? Because the problem is that if you try to pay a doctor through Medicaid, an amount that the doctor is unwilling to take, then doctors stop taking Medicaid altogether. They won't take it. So you actually end up restricting supply. So the price goes up, and then the government has to increase the reimbursement rates. But they don't want to increase the reimbursement rates. They want to lower them. So whenever they do this, there's this pressure on Medicaid, where everybody is covered by Medicaid, presumably, if you're poor enough, but nobody can actually get care because there's not a doctor who's actually, who's actually willing to provide the care for this. Imagine that the government came along and said, everyone has couch insurance, right? You all need couches. So Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over to the local couch store, and we're going to offer the couch store $1 for the couch. That's our negotiation tactic. We're going to collectively bargain as Medicaid. We're going to pay $1 for the couch. Most couch stores would tell you to get out, right? I mean, there there would be a – you'd have coverage. You'd have health insurance coverage. You'd have couch coverage, but you wouldn't actually have a couch. And herein lies the problem. This is why Medicaid does not actually have a longer life expectancy if you have Medicaid than if you just use emergency services. So the couch store has two choices. One – they could not sell you the couch at all. Two, they could sell it to you for $1 and then charge some rich guy twice the price. So healthcare provider costs are actually passed on. If, if, if a healthcare provider, a doctor, is taking Medicaid, he passes those costs on to private insurance providers. Private insurance providers make most of their money from employer-based insurance plans. And that means they're bargaining with businesses all the time, trying to pass on their losses to those businesses. But the businesses are capable of shopping around, theoretically. So what happens is that you will have a situation where... Basically, insurance companies are now attempting to make up their losses or doctors are attempting to make up their losses on Medicaid uh, or on all of these kind of crammed down insurance programs. And so what they'll do is they know that everything's going to be bargained down. And so what they do is they submit a bill to Medicaid for 40 grand and then they settle for seven. Right? You see this on your, on your health insurance bills, right? You'll see that the, the, the hospital wanted to charge 20 and then the insurance paid six and now you're going to pay one. Right? This is, this is, and you go, what the hell are they doing? They are trying to jack up the price specifically to get you to cover all of, the, all of the money that they're missing from taking things like Medicaid in the first place. So where does all the cost end up? Well, it ends up on the group market. You don't end up feeling it because your employer is covering it anyway. And they put it on the individual market too, which is why premiums have been skyrocketing there. Now, you could theoretically on your own bargain with the insurance companies, but you don't have very much le- leverage because you're you, like you're one guy. So instead... The left calls for us to subsidize you, right? You're the one who's screwed in the individual market, so we try to subsidize you. But if you subsidize people, then that artificially raises the price too. Here's the bottom line. Just like in every other area of the economy, in every other area of the economy, if you try to artificially lower price without increasing supply, you actually end up destroying the system. 
The only way that you can do that is by centralizing the control of supply, nationalizing the healthcare system, and that still doesn't solve the supply problem. It just makes you feel better about it because now you've nationalized the system so those evil rich people are getting what they deserve. Right? Bottom line is one market intervention leads to the next market intervention. And because the left wanted to get the government involved in the healthcare market, now it is involved in every aspect of the healthcare market, and everyone is afraid of withdrawing from that, acting as though if you do so, it's going to collapse the healthcare system. It's precisely the opposite. The government collapses the healthcare system through regulation, which then requires subsidy, which then requires more regulation, which then requires more subsidy, which eventually requires nationalization. That means that if you actually want a good quality, low-cost product, you need less regulation, less subsidy. What you actually need is people competing in the marketplace to, to generate the lowest cost, highest quantity solution in healthcare, just as you do in every other product. Supply and demand does not cease to apply just because you wish it would. Okay, well, we'll be back here tomorrow. We'll do the mailbag, and I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 